and we're live welcome to time of death we have your host d and rest and we're here to delve into the sinister evil mind of donald harvey never heard of donald harvey i know so i'm very excited this is episode five of time of death and we discuss true crime from a nursing perspective given our backgrounds of psychiatric and medical nursing so d take it away yes let's get into it so donald harvey was an american serial killer who claimed to murder 87 people okay so we're getting some real heavy hitters here he was actually an orderly, so he was like a nursing aide. Mm. This is the first like nursing assistant that we've really covered in this podcast. So let's do this. His killing spree took place between 1970 to 1987. And he was a self-proclaimed angel of death, which is a reoccurring oh theme in this. <laughs> I okay. feel like most of the time they claim that. But it's interesting because he, like, that was, like, his big thing. We'll get into that a little later. So, Donald was born in Hamilton, Ohio on April 15th, 1952. He was the oldest of three kids born to Ray and Goldie Harvey. They moved shortly afterwards and he was raised in Boonville, Kentucky, where his parents were tobacco farmers and members of the Baptist Church. In their town. And I guess they were like on the poverty line. They really struggled. So also, and there's a trigger warning for this. From ages 4 to 20, Harvey was sexually molested and raped by an uncle and a neighbor. While he was at his grandma's house, his uncle, like, that's where the abuse took place. And then the older neighbor would offer Harvey money for different sexual favors. But also, he had a roommate named Randy White that at age 18 raped him. And he did not disclose that to anyone besides his sister well after this abuse ended. So there's a significant trauma history with this individual and, you know, trauma manifests in everyone differently. That's why trauma-informed care is so important. That's very true. Being mindful of the experiences that patients go through should be very high on the priority list. No, I agree completely. So that is something that I wanted, you know, again, trigger warning for people. Also of note, in my research, it appears that Donald had several head injuries in his childhood as well. That's a common pattern among serial killers i've heard that before and i I don't exactly remember where but i do know that it plays a role like that head trauma can play a role in not i mean not saying everyone who's got head trauma will become a serial killer right but i think it definitely does kind of i'd like to see the data in that yeah that's a good point i think probably there's multiple risk factors and it's an environmental thing as well but just delving into those injuries a little more there were two injuries that he had in his childhood that were significant the first being when he was six months old his dad actually fell asleep with young donald baby donald in his arms and accidentally dropped him 
Oh. And the second one occurred when he was five years old and he fell off the side of a truck. So they're saying that he didn't lose consciousness during either of the two falls. However, both times he suffered large wounds on his head. So the head trauma was at six months old and then five years old, right? Okay. So there's, you know, a physiological explanation. Severe head trauma can alter personalities as well. So I wonder if it was something to do with like the frontal lobe or what, but something to think about. Harvey ended up dropping out of school in ninth grade. Obviously, he had a very troubled childhood and he ended up earning his GED later on in 1968. He was arrested for burglary shortly afterwards in 1971 and then enlisted in the United States Air Force. Again, reoccurring theme, Mm. um, but was discharged after nine months due to several suicide attempts. And after like these nervous breakdowns, he decided to come to terms with his sexuality and that he was homosexual. Okay. They're speculating what was kind of like the impetus for him to begin these killings because he was only 18. When he started? When he started. Oh my, that's young. During that time when he was 18, his grandfather died and he went to go see him. And then also he was raped again um, when he was 18 years old by Randy, his roommate. Oh, God. So they're not really sure, like, what was really the defining moment for him. But, yeah, very, very, very troubled childhood. Yeah, this repetitive trauma, too, you know, and that can really have a huge effect on people. So after being discharged from the Air Force, he began working in Marymount hospital in kentucky and he was 18 and he was an orderly there he later confessed that during that 10-month period in the hospital he killed at least a dozen patients very heavy stuff what kind of setting was it do you know he was they were all cardiac patients oh my yeah he it like we'll get into that a little different but he again really insisted that he was an angel of death. Um, He was killing purely out of empathy for those who are suffering and those who are terminally ill. However, he also admitted that a lot of these killings were committed because he was very angry at the victims. He really had no specific victim type. It would range from middle age to elderly Men, women, no specific race, ethnicity, or background. Really, the common theme was that they were cardiac patients. Hmm. But also very interesting, he didn't have a specific MO, like way that he killed his patients. He would use arsenic, cyanide, insulin. He would suffocate them. He used morphine. He turned off ventilators. He also administered fluid with hepatitis B and HIV. How did he get access to those pathogens? He worked in the hospital. He just, oh my, I wonder if like he had contaminated I'm sure that he had something. Maybe he had patients that had those illnesses. He's very yeah. easy for him to 
you know, you go into the sharps container and you yeah. can really. But he also inserted a coat hanger into someone's catheter. They're fully, they're fully catheter. Yeah, the urinary catheter, yeah. and that like resulted in a massive infection. Oh my so god! He, there was definitely some like perverse, like enjoying inflicting pain onto other people thing going on with him. Definitely that element. Yeah, because. When you're claiming that you're an angel of death and you do that to, I mean, that's a, I would think that's torturous. Like that must have been oh, he uncomfortable their, for these he patients. Punctured their abdomen yeah. and then they had a massive infection. He most often used cyanide and arsenic. However, would administer them in either injection or in people's food. Oh, oh yeah. I guess for arsenic and cyanide, it's interesting to me how the methodology, like obviously the morphine and insulin are similar to some of the other cases that we've talked about, mm -hmm. but it's interesting to see from a, like a nursing AIDS uh, serial killer, you know, their mode yeah, and how they use the various methods, like such as arsenic. I don't, I don't know very many nurses who have done, I mean, I'm sure there are, but who've, who've used arsenic in their killings. Yeah, I, I cannot say that I've ever administered. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we have any. Maybe we do have some arsenic somewhere in the hospital, but I, I haven't like, come across any. What the heck is going on? But So he, besides Marymount, he ended up later working at Cincinnati, the VA medical hospital. And while he was working at the VA, and this was in 1985, security guards found in his locker... A loaded 38 caliber revolver, hospital supplies, books on the occult, and human body parts. Yes. What kind of body parts? <laughs> it didn't specify. Oh, my God. But literally, they were like, oh, my God, what? <laughs> what the Those hell are... is going on here? <laughs> Can a you imagine? feel the red flags there. <laughs> you just see a freaking foot <laughs> someone's gym bag like what would no, you what would you do? i don't know i don't know what i would do i don't know either i would probably, I'd probably be i'd be shocked and in, into silence probably i know i usually am it's very hard to shock me into silence but i think i would get to the point i would just shut up <laughs> you know what i mean it's just shocking obviously well people It'd be reported but oh my god I, I don't i don't know what i would say or do I don't even like it when people have like the rabbit's foot like that alone makes me uncomfortable I cannot imagine a freaking human the lucky foot. rabbit's foot you just look at his keychain and there's a human foot on it like mm. just casual <laughs> now that we're talking about the rabbit foot though that is kind of like a grotesque thing just having yeah. an animal's body part just hanging on your keychain like, I mean what? I think I had one when I was younger we definitely did we definitely had them but if you think about it, like why carry a, a rabbit's foot on your keychain I think dad got it for us and i was like what the hell is this yeah <laughs> i remember it so clearly yeah we were definitely traumatized from that but it's fine <laughs> we have our own trauma it's rabbit feet so they were they found that however because they had no probable cause to search harvey the hospital could not fire him and during that time he was an autopsy assistant <laughs> So he literally was just hanging out in the morgue, probably sawed someone's freaking foot off. And I'm just assuming it was a foot. 
because I can't imagine like I my mind can't go anywhere else. But just sawed it off really casual and threw it in his gym bag. That's like urban curiosity, I feel like was developing there. Yes, I agree. I agree. And this is after also he killed so maybe he had killed this person and then went back and this was like a trophy. Mm. I don't know though. So he ended up resigning from his post at that facility as an autopsy assistant. And in February 1986, he began working at Daniel Drake Memorial Hospital in Ohio. So just a few weeks into his new position, he again began killing patients. And over the next year, murdered dozens. He again claimed that they were mercy killings. And I actually have a quote that I will share. Okay. This is per the New York Times. So he literally gave a statement to the New York Times about this. Isn't that kind of weird? That is very bizarre. So I, I always find it weird when serial killers or other people who've committed crimes share their feelings about the case yeah. with news and media. It's just interesting to me. Like, I feel like it's, it's kind of, you know, does more harm than good for them. Well, he let it all loose. Wow. He said, I felt like what I was doing was right. I was putting people out of their misery. I hope if I'm ever sick and full of tubes or on a respirator, someone will come and end it. But that's when you do a freaking DNR. Yep. That is not when you decide to take it. How do you know that those people wanted to die? You just made that decision. for You took away all their autonomy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You're, who are you to say what they want? I also have a quote from an FBI profiler. Ooh. His name was John E. Douglas, and he interviewed Donald. And he said, Donald was not a mercy killer because some of the things that he did were sadistic to the victims. Like sticking a coat hanger up through someone's catheter exactly. into their abdomen. Exactly. You don't do that as an act of mercy, ever. Also, he ended up also killing several of his roommates, lover, <laughs> slash neighbors, none of whom were ill or dying. Okay, so then it's, it's definitely not It's all killing. out the window no. at that point. This suggests more that he liked to kill, could get away with it, and he got something from that power, control. Like, he was essentially playing God. Do you live or do you die? You know? You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. So he was definitely a cold kind of guy. Yeah. Seems that way. Just kind of elaborating more on those people that he killed that were not patients. One of which was his roommate and lover, Carl Howler, because he was cheating on Donald. And it was a recipe for disaster. You know, cheating, never, never a supporter of cheating ever. However... It never is a reason in for murder. <laughs> you, well, know? you know? It's just ridiculous. Like, you look at people that, I mean, it's not right. Cheating is a horrible, awful thing, and it, you know, it's devastating to the other person. But murder, murder, you ain't coming back from that. Cheating, no. you can at least, like, sometimes have some kind of, you know, r- resolution and forgiveness. Murder? No. 
even like the people who are inmates who like go back and like find God and I don't know. What do you think about that? What? Like they go back and they like have this religious epiphany and find God and I don't know. I think sometimes it might, I mean like potentially could be possible. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of people when they commit like, I guess it depends on the crime. If you commit mm. a heinous crime and you, I, I, I don't know, I, I feel like it really depends on what you did and your motive mm. for doing it. It's not the action that's always the most important thing. It's the intention behind it. I don't know. I just, I feel like when you do like evil shit, it like stains your stole. Your stole? Your stole. Your stool. <laughs> <laughs> no, like really though, I think it like, take something away from you that's I agree I don't know if you can get back and I think I don't want to speak on anyone's beliefs in there like that's their own relationship with their higher power but I don't know you have to you have to give something in order for what you took away I think it's possible to reconcile to some extent but yeah I really think it I agree with you it darkens your soul mm-hmm. and I mean, that chunk of you is now forever dead. And how much can you come back from that? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm sure there are people who've committed horrible things and they've had a huge change of mind and they're, you know, a better person now. But Mm -hmm. I think it's more of a rarity. Yeah, I agree. But I don't know. And then there's also like the people who like intend, like I think there's different like levels to it, you know, like the people who do something unintentionally or like just again, your action is just as important as the intention behind it. Mm. Like accidents do happen and I get that. And it's still a horrible, tragic thing when people's lives are lost, obviously. But I think there's a huge difference between, like, intentionally, maliciously hurting another person and then, you know, making a error and a mistake that changes the whole course of someone's life. It all comes down to reason. Wow, we are delving deep into this. Like, I'm amazed because usually half the time we're, like, cracking up and now we're just, like freaking philosophers welcome to time of death (laughs) true crime from a philosophical perspective what is evil what is good (laughs) so anyways moving on so basically after he had been on this killing spree completely undetected for 17 years he messed up in march 1987 an autopsy on john powell who died abruptly after spending several months on life support after he was in a severe motorcycle accident. He was noted to have large amounts of cyanide in his system. Mm. The person conducting the autopsy smelled almonds. Oh, yes, I've heard that. It has an almond scent. Okay. Tell me how I just was rereading Patricia Cornwell. 
her Case Scarpetta series. Oh, God. And now that I'm a shameless plug for this series, and Patricia Cornwell, if you ever hear this, I love you. You are amazing. I love your characters. You're the freaking bomb.com. <laughs> <laughs> this is my love letter to you. And this was literally in one of the books I just was rereading. About she the freaking my brilliant Dr. K. Scarpetta smells almonds. No one else can smell the freaking almonds because it's an X-linked recessive tree. What to be able to smell them? Yeah, well, that's what it said in the book. And she's per- like a meticulous researcher, so I'm sure it's true. Oh yeah. And she smells almonds, and she's like, "Oh my god, everybody get out!" Like I don't know if I want to be Dr. K. Scarpetta, or I just want to like be in her presence. I don't know which one. Or you want to be Patricia? <laughs> or Patricia? <laughs> but you are just as cool mm-hmm. as K. Scarpetta. Please. I'm your number one fan. (laughs) Who do you like better? Case Garpetta or Sherlock Holmes? If you had to choose one. That's so hard. (laughs) Don't do that to me. Please don't do that to me. Because then you have Case Garpetta, Dr. Case Doctor, freaking doctor and lawyer. She's like the ultimate She's both doctor and lawyer. Yeah, she's a doctor and a lawyer. And you knew that this was going to come up at some point, and I knew that you've been dreading it because <laughs> I have no shame. <laughs> she loves you, Kay. I love you. <laughs> and Sherlock. And Sherlock, my fictional crushes. It's since fine. I, she's, she has been a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes since, I don't know, you were extremely small. I was in elementary a school. A little baby. <laughs> we went to Gillette Castle, remember, with our Girl Scout troop. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, the freaking, I remember, I, I think I just finished The Hound of Baskerville, and I was like, I, I know it, that this is where Charlotte, I couldn't, like, understand that it was the actor. <laughs> I almost had a stroke when I saw <laughs> the guy running around dressed as Sherlock Holmes. I almost had a, a legitimate stroke. Oh, I don't remember that part. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I was, like, gravitated him to, like, a moth to light. I was so excited. <laughs> Is that you, Sherlock? Oh, Sherlock, I love you. <laughs> I love you, Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fine. It's fine. But anyways, jumping back to good old Donald. So he, they smelled this almond scent during this autopsy, and they're like, oh, my God, this guy was poisoned. So investigators began sniffing around get it (laughs) sniffing (laughs) something does not smell right (laughs) and harvey donald harvey became a person of interest um they learned about his mysterious and abrupt departure from the va hospital patients dying on his watch this being like a pattern and the fact that he stole freaking body parts from the morgue I'm so curious what body parts he had stored in his locker. I wish I freaking knew. And how do you, I I wonder why they explored his locker. Like, did they smell these rotting bodies? I'm I'm confused about that. I'm confused too. And I feel like he was probably just a really, I don't know, because you know, you like pick up a vibe on a person and you're like, oh, bad news. Maybe they picked up on that, like that weird energy. And also, 
Like, how is that not probable cause to I think investigate him further with all those but literally human body parts in his locker. So like, I think it's like the police. Hmm. You need a warrant. Hmm. If you don't have a warrant, but I don't know because it's a private hospital. So I don't know. Hmm. But I think there has to be like legitimate reason to go and do like do a search. Yeah. I just don't understand how that doesn't constitute as legitimate. reason. I mean, he could argue maybe someone planted it. I guess. I don't know. But anyways, jumping back, Donald said that he would take a polygraph when the police said, hey, like, you're a little fishy, dude. Mm. said, oh, sorry, I'll take a polygraph test. And then he went out and he bought a book about how to be (laughs) polygraph tests and then called out sick. From the polygraph test? Yeah, from the polygraph test. He was not prepared. He said, oh, shoot, I am not ready for this. Police then brought him in for questioning, and he confessed to putting cyanide in Powell's feeding tube. He said that he felt really sorry for him, and that's why he killed him. This guy, what did you say? He was a motorcycle accident? Motorcycle accident. Yeah. He was on life support. You know, that does not mean that, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that does not mean that his wishes aren't to continue fighting. Exactly. For his family. Exactly. Because if, he, if he's unable to, if he was unable to say what he wanted or, or you know, get his, what he wanted a, across. And so. he, he was, it sounded like he had been, like, st- not stable, but. He had been on this for months. Like, clearly, there was, had to have been, like, progress being made, even if it was, like, incremental. You know what I mean? And if it took him months or years, so what? You know what I mean? Yeah. And he didn't have to get back to his baseline, even if, like, all, I think all life is worthy. You know what I mean? And there should be autonomy. And if he made the decision or his family made the decision, if he didn't have the capacity to, that's their decision. You can't take that away from me. And then we introduced Pat Menarchin. He was an anchor at the Cincinnati station, WCPO-TV. And Pat thought it unlikely that someone who was caring for patients for 17 years would suddenly kill only one, which I agree with, without having done that before. Mm. So great point. Way to go, Pat. During his report on the night of Harvey's arrest, Menarkin asked on air if there had been any other deaths. And this encouraged several nurses to come forward and raise concerns that they had brought up with administration, noticing a spike of deaths whenever Donald Harvey was involved. An administration ordered them to keep quiet. How many of these things can be resolved earlier if people would listen to what other staff have viewed or observed? You know what I mean? Like, obviously, you see patterns. Nurses and other medical professional and nurses' aides are not stupid. Other Mm -hmm. staff at the hospital are not stupid. And they are able to see patterns better Mm -hmm. than management most of the time is able to 
So listen to your staff. That's all I have to say. Thank you. And if you, I say this all the time, if you see something, say something. You're not comfortable. You don't like the way something looks. You make noise. And that is, thank God, those nurses said something. The nurses actually reached out to Pat Menarkin and told him that there was evidence that Harvey had killed 10 more people. He took it upon himself to investigate these suspicious deaths and amassed enough evidence to air a half-hour special report detailing evidence that linked Harvey to at least an additional 24 murders Mm. in a four-year period. So this was at Drake Hospital that all these nurses came forward, and a big reason that he was able to kind of like fly under the radar is because he worked in an area of the hospital that patients were not expected to survive. I feel like if you are a serial killer who's claiming to kill out of mercy, that is the spot. You know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. you're, if that's where you, that's the, I mean, the, the, looking at it from my perspective, that's the smartest place to continue doing what you the evil things that you want to do mm-hmm. you know without garnering as much suspicion like say you were in an, a different area i agree and you're just going to work mm-hmm. you know no one could say what's your alibi oh how was that work <laughs> yeah. i don't know but so harvey's lawyer was notified that menarkin had found all these additional people and asked Donald, have you killed anyone else? And Donald told him that he estimated that he killed nearly 70 people. Oh, God. It's like, oh, my God. You can't make it up. His lawyer said that if prosecutors can link Harvey, Donald Harvey, to more than one murder, he would be facing the death penalty. His lawyer offered prosecutors a plea bargain. If the death penalty was taken off the table, Harvey would accept a sentence of life without parole and confess to all the murders. So give closure to all of these families. Do you think they agreed or just, would you agree to that if you were a prosecutor? Now see the families of the people he killed deserve closure so i'm not going to get into what i believe about capital punishment but i think giving those families the closure that they never got is 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 more important than him receiving the death penalty you know and if you can get some more information out of him through that i would i would i would have gone for it i would have gone for it they they did good They agreed, and he admitted to killing 24 people. But he had said he had killed approximately 70. So a couple discrepancies. Mm. August 1987 pled guilty to 24 counts of first-degree murder. And following the plea agreement, he was sentenced to three concurrent terms of life in prison without parole. The plea agreement, however allowed prosecutors to seek death penalty if more murders came to light. 
which I thought was interesting. With this in mind, that November, Harvey pled guilty to killing nine patients at Marymount in the 1970s. So he said, wait, hold on. <laughs> so before the plea was like... Was 24. He pled guilty and then he was like, oh my God, they have it in my plea deal that if the, uh, anything else comes to life, I'm on the chopping block. Yeah. So nine more patients he admitted to. He was sentenced to life plus 20 years to run concurrently. Ultimately, he pled guilty to 37 murders. Wow. However, again, he's changed his story a couple times, but he confessed to killing as many as 50 with investigators. So with his lawyer, he said about 70, and now he's saying about 50. So we will really never know the whole true number of people. Does he feel like he is the type of killer who you're never going to get a straight answer out of oh yeah no you're never gonna truly know how he's too squirrely he's actually killed yeah and that like goes back to no remorse no empathy no you know he wants to like have something for himself that he knows that he can get away with and maybe Mm -hmm. he's trying to make himself sound much more prolific than he was but I have a sneaking suspicion that there were more victims that we know nothing about. Yeah. So he was admitted to the Ohio prison system in October of 1987. And in March 2017, authorities reported that Harvey had been found in his cell severely beaten. He's 65 years old at this point. Oh, even this geriatric old geezer is running around in jail and they found him severely beaten and he died shortly afterwards on March 30th, 2017. On May 3rd, his fellow inmate, James Elliott, was charged with aggravated murder and other charges related to Donald's death. In September 2019, he was sentenced to an additional 25 years to life in prison after pleading guilty to killing Harvey. He spent one week planning that attack. During an interview, Elliot said that he wanted to kill a fellow inmate to draw attention to a number of grievances he had with the prison guards and administration. He selected Donald to do that. However, he chose Donald for a very specific reason. He explained, and this is a quote, I guess a part of me saw this as an opportunity to finally do something constructive for my neighbors by a way of closure or peace of mind. Mm. And in turn, balance the karmic scales in my favor. Okay. So it sounds like he was trying to right some wrong that he did by taking this individual out of the world. All right. (laughs) <laughs> I guess. and i don't think killing is is the right way to go and again the intention is just as important as the action but in this case i can't condone some guy beating the crap out of some old Wait. defenseless man to, even if he did horrible shells yeah i wonder what elliot elliot did i don't know what elliot did why do you ask all these very good questions that I should have thought of. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's where we're at. 
in terms of Donald and what are your final thoughts on Donald? My final thoughts are, I mean, we've discussed this, but his whole spiel about being a angel of death are just, just inaccurate. They don't line up with any of his actions. So I think he just was a cruel killer who, you know, got satisfaction from his killings. I don't think there was any mercy in, in anything he did. And it's terrible that as a nurse's aide, he was able to commit these horrible things and, and do it under the guise of mercy. Yeah, that, that sums it up my feelings very nicely as well. Uh, yeah, the I, I just think that the disregard for others' lives is astounding yeah i feel like we talk about that every time we do these cases because it's just i and it might just can't wrap my mind around it as yeah. as healthcare workers our duty is to protect these patients and advocate for them and not you know not doing anything remotely close to that it's just wrong it's just it's just incomprehensible yeah it's but well, i think we we should Call our time of death. What's the time? Call it. It is 1921 for you people who use military time. And 721 p.m. for those of you who do not. And thank you for joining us. We appreciate all of you. We love you. And shout out to Luminari Productions for all of the help. Thank you. Yes, thank you, thank you. And I think that's it. Happy seventh birthday to my older cat, Bub. My I first knew full, you were going to forget. baby cat. <laughs> he just turned seven. Oh, my God. And he's a little angel. And no, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Yes, he is. <laughs> Look at him. And I just want to let you know, because we don't have a visual component to this podcast, Bubba Every single time we do our podcast, nestles himself in between Dia and I and just lays there and sleeps on the table and it's the most sweetest thing ever. Okay, Dia's just staring at me. So we're going <laughs> to just thank you all for listening and we'll be back next Wednesday. Follow us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and we also have an Instagram page as well, Time of Death Podcast. So thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed listening to this case. Yes, you're killing it. Stay killing it. Keep killing it. Keep killing it. Bye, guys.